evening, everybody. Good evening, everybody. That's right, your dreams are valid. Um, that is the initiative that is run by the Student Com, and they want to raise money for students who can afford fees. Um, so before we even uh, before we even continue with the service, you guys might, might might look like we're running late. But one of the things that we believe in God for, and one of the things that we've been praying uh, to God for, is that He would be filling us with the Holy Spirit. Um, it's one thing to hear teachings, it's one thing to hear instructions, but it's another thing to be filled by the Holy Spirit, who leads us into all truth and is the source of all comfort. So we believe in God to be the source of our comfort and also to fill us. Um, so. Thank you very much, Chesa. <laughs> You're going to make me want to sing, and that's not a good idea. Um, <laughs> that's the link uh, for the Your Dreams Are Valid um, uh, fundraiser. Go get funding.com uh, forward slash Your Dreams Are Valid. So please use it uh, and make sure that we raise money for those that are in need. So I'm going to start off with a question tonight uh, because we've had ama two amazing services where you guys didn't have to interact. Uh, tonight you'll have to interact. Please respond in the, in the comment section as well. So the question is, have you ever had something urgent and that is really, really, really important happen and it needed faith? Something that was really important and really urgent and needed faith, something like a bursary application um, or something like an exam coming up, something like a date, <laughs> and then you only realize during the praying that this is actually unfamiliar ground that I don't really pray like this on a day-to-day -day basis I've had to up my praying for this specific special crisis this is not my life <laughs> but I've had to kind of incorporate it into my life and then you get convicted and then you decide that maybe this is a change uh, that's meant to be happening in my life going forward. Um, and then it doesn't happen until, and doesn't happen again until the next crisis. I believe that one of the greatest enemies to our faith is distraction. We make the commitment, but then something else takes our attention and we get distracted. This is... My journey with running as well. I wish I could hide. <laughs> um, so please, for those of you who've come to the service before, there's a running illustration alert. There's a running illustration ahead. Um, so people that take on the challenge in terms of different races, people that take it seriously and come out victorious, it is the people that don't show up on race day and give it their best. It is the people whose lifestyles People whose diet, whose training, whose sleep patterns, whose mindsets revolve around the next possible victory. But some of us show up on race day just for the t-shirt. <laughs> others do it just for the cheers to share on other people. And others do it to be spectators and others come to criticize because haters gonna hate. And others do it to participate, to participate and to win. I believe that there is a bold spiritual parallel to this picture. I'm going to read a scripture from Mark 9, which has some, some, a couple of characters that can even represent some of those different um, uh, categories that I've mentioned earlier on. Mark 9 verse 14, please read it. It says, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing about? Uh, what are you arguing with them about? Jesus asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, 
I brought my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of his speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive the spirit out, but they could not. And Jesus says, you unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy to the ground. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, it has often thrown him into the fire or the water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Immediately, uh, Jesus said, if you can, if everything is possible for him who believes, immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit, you deaf and mute spirit. He said, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this come, this kind can come out by prayer, and other translations say by prayer and fasting. Litawa says registering adverts was that moment for her where she needed that extra faith, and then other people just said, yes, please share it, y'all. Wendy said that. Um, so whatever it is, it required way more faith than is necessary that you normally walk in. I love this question that the disciples asked. He said that, how come we couldn't cast it out? And he said that they asked it in private. There was nobody else to watch them, nobody else to give commentary about this question. But I said, how come we could not cast it out? My prayer tonight is that we would find ourselves in that place of honesty where we would give that honest question before God about the different things we couldn't cast out and say, God, how come we could not cast them out? Jesus has a response for them. And I believe that Jesus also has a response for us. The context here is that this follows the transfiguration where Peter, James, and John went up onto a mountain and saw Jesus in the fullness of his glory. They also saw Moses, Elijah, and they also saw God affirm that Jesus was the Son of God. Now the three disciples and Jesus came back to return to the other remaining disciples and they found them arguing with the scribes. There's a scripture in Luke 18 verse 8 and the last part of that scripture says that when, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And that's the question. When the Son of Man comes, when Jesus comes, will he find faith in us or will he find us arguing with people we shouldn't be having any business arguing with? The disciples have tried to expel a dangerous demon from a young boy but have been unable despite having performed exorcisms before. I read this and because I identify very much with the disciples, I wonder to myself, could it be that the disciples could not do what they could do before because they felt like there was something wrong with them not being able to experience what happened on the mountain of transfiguration. 
Could it be that they were so distracted by their jealousy? Could it be that they were so distracted by their sense of shame? Could it be that they were so distracted by their comparativeness, competitiveness that they found themselves not being able to do what they've been able to do before? There's a scholar by the name of Morgan, and he says that when Jesus came down, he found disputing scribes, a distracted father, a demon-possessed boy, and defeated disciples. I'd like to change it up a little bit and say that he found disputing scribes, that's what Jesus found. But he found a disappointed, devastated father. He found a demon-possessed boy, and he found defeated, distracted disciples. The most heartbreaking part of the scripture is that between the disciples' first attempt to cast out the demon to the time when Jesus comes back, is that they are found doing, they are found paying attention to something that had nothing to do with why they were there. They were in that scene to cast out a demon out of that boy, but they were now entangled with something that was not the reason why they were there. They were having a back and forth with the scribes. Having a back and forth that was not resulting in the boy getting well. Bringing this home and looking at our world, how many conversations are we currently engaged in? How many disputes, debate that some of us find ourselves in that are happening as people are suffering around us and the most oppressed people are dying? The Bible refers to them as the least of these. How many forums do we find ourselves in where we're trying to prove things using words, where we see in the Bible that they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they didn't just use words to prove the word of God, they used power to prove the word of God. My claim tonight is that one of the greatest silent killers of our faith is distraction. It slips itself into our daily lives and goes undetected because it's not that harmful. I've lost so much ground in my walk with God so many times, way more from distraction than from a head-on confrontation with the enemy. We accommodate distractions. We make room for them. We give them nice euphemisms. I got carried away. (laughs) Back to the story. If I was one of the disciples, I'd probably be explaining to the scribes how we have to take certain things into consideration when it comes to situations like this. It's not that cut and dry. And besides, I mean, when I scribe, it's not like you could cast it out anyway, right? (laughs) And I'm actually going through a lot currently, you know? Um, I'm actually like in in a tight space in my life. Don't expect me to act like a Christian. And it's Jesus that heals, not me. If I was the scribe, I'll probably, use, I'll probably be using everything that just happened to prove how the attention that these disciples are getting has been, they've been getting is actually due to us, not them. They're getting it illegitimately. They just failed to do something as simple as casting out a demon. But if I was the little boy, I'd have nothing to say because I'd still be dying, mute, in pain, tormented, and traumatized. So now, distractions are only worth exploring if there's a destination in mind. If there's a direction that we are going and there's a mission at hand, they only matter if where we are going matters. The enemy is not going to come at you with what I call dismissible distractions. He's not going to come to you with those obvious things that you'll be able to be militant against. 
the things that are obvious and are easy to detect and dismiss, he's not going to come to you like that. I actually think that a lot of times we are way more prone to responding to scandal than we are to sin. So the more something is a bit more scandalous, that's what we run towards. It's unlike when something is sin. Scandal gets us to write articles, to write tweets. We speak very boldly and well about corruption out there. Because it's scandalous rather than corruption in here. And everything else that's not put on blast seeps into our culture and becomes how we do life. Jesus is the opposite. We see him doing something opposite to this in this story. He pauses in the middle of a healing and a deliverance and he addresses a generation. I used to read this as, you know, like when you, like Jesus, I mean, there you go again, escalating the matter. <laughs> Seriously, I think you're blowing this out of proportion. You know when you, when you are young and you, like, you broke a glass and somehow your mother like, managed to add the fact that you failed maths to the fact that you broke a glass? <laughs> like, <laughs> And you're like, you broke a glass and you're failing maths. You're like, but the glass and maths, how do they, you know? How would you not break glasses? If, I mean, like, how, how does maths have to do with me breaking glasses? I always thought this is what Jesus is doing. But it sounds to me that the culture that's synonymous with this generation has set a level of faith that is unable to care for the dying. It has set a level of faith that is able to overlook the least of this to attend to arguments and conversations that have nothing to do with desperate, urgent situations. In Luke's account of the story, he uses the words perverse and crooked generation. I was like, Jesus, that's a bit extra. Or unbelieving and crooked generations. He says this to a people that prided themselves by which God they claimed to worship, as opposed to other people. Sounds a little bit familiar, right? Their view of themselves was that they were straight, but Jesus said, you are faithless and twisted. You are faithless and crooked. You could have had your eye on the goal, but something distracted you. You could have had a pathway to follow, but something distracted you, and you are now twisted and crooked. He's called them many unflattering things in the past, but I was wondering why this grant diagnosis in the middle of the scene. If you look at Deuteronomy 32, you'll find that he is echoing the words of Moses when he was speaking to the children of Israel in the wilderness. It's said that they have acted corruptly towards him being God, and they are not his children because of their deceit. They are perverse and crooked generation. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying that the very people you think you are better than you are exactly the same as them. It says that further on in the scripture in uh, Deuteronomy that they sacrifice to demons who are not God, to gods whom they have not known, new gods to come lately, whom your fathers didn't even um, revere. It says that you are exactly the same as those people. People, Jews, Jesus, not Jesus. Jesus uses this situation where a demon was being cast out to show how compromised we were. Sorry, they were. The scribes were distracted by dead religion. 
the disciples were distracted by their failure. Distractions sometimes can come in ways and forms that look illegitimate, but other times in ways and forms that look legitimate. Like my sense of failure, my sense of pain, and my sense of shame. If we are not going anywhere, I say it's okay. Remain distracted. But if there's a mission at hand, I say God corrected, correct us from being perverted and twisted. The father's faith was distracted by these situations. How many conversations were happening, the disputes, as people are suffering? Everybody was distracted while this child was dying. What's the opposite of a distracted life? I thought about this. I'm like, God, what is it? Is it like, must try very hard? (laughs) Focus. Focus. (laughs) I felt God lead me to Matthew 6, verse 33, which says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Pastor Carol, you should speak about this so much, and we should think, oh, Pastor Carol, there you go again. But it's so powerful. You seek first the kingdom. And all these things are added unto you. Before that verse, it says that, for the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly father knows, though, that you need them. So what do you do? You don't seek them. You seek first the kingdom of God. Verse 34 says that, therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Is tomorrow a distraction? Is the worry in my heart, has it become a distraction to me? Last week, Pastor Tello spoke about how the disciples could have lost their lives at sea because of their lack of faith. I believe that tonight's scripture shows that how the cost is not just their personal lives, but the cost could be a whole generation. When our faith is distracted, it derails a whole generation. I think that we've been good at explaining it away talking about the why not, giving good explanations and reasons, but the cost of it is a whole generation. Could God be calling us out of distraction to a discipline and a devotion that won't have our world still dying, mute, traumatized, in pain, and tormented? I believe what distracts us is sometimes a lot more internal than it is external. It's our pride, our image, our hurt. Whenever I don't evangelize, it's never because of some impossible talk. This is such an impossible talk. No, 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 no. It's normally, how will I be perceived? My pride. I believe that we are the obstacles to our own obedience. Our excuses. I would like for us to be that generation that is not known by its excuses, but it's known by being an exception to the rule that they could have been held down. They had good enough reason to stay down, but they became the exception to the rule. It's never that complex what God asks of us. It's just that it will cost us everything. You want to know if you're distracted or not? Is it costing you everything? There are five questions that we find in this scripture. I'm going to read through them, and then we're going to close tonight. The first question that Jesus asked is, what are you arguing with them about? I believe this was a spiritual warfare staged. 
And one of the best things, Pastor Tim Johnson said this recently at the past conference, one of the best things to do when you find yourself in a spiritual warfare battle is not to talk back to the accusations of the enemy. You don't talk, you do. You don't think, you do. We don't debate about demons or with demons. We deliberate on how to do more for God and take more ground. The best way to show my faith for God is by committing my action to my confession. That's the first question. The second question is, how long has he been like this? There is a strategy against our generation, but there is a strategy against your life. This answer here, it says that, Ever since he was a child, from childhood, it has been often thrown him into the fire or the water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us. Ever since he was a child, there was this thing that was trying to get rid of him. There was this thing that was an onslaught going against his purpose, going against his calling. But somehow he survived. I want to say something to you tonight. Somehow you survived. There is a strategy that the enemy has put out there against your life. It's not in the nose, but I believe the enemy comes against us in two ways. Street and strategic. I believe that he sometimes comes in us, to us in a way that he street, you know street is that he'll fight you with everything. Knives, rocks, <laughs> guns, everything, whatever he can get against you. So your relationships are going wrong, finances, whatever. But he does that, but he also comes against you in a strategic manner. Strategy says that I'm going to wait for you when you turn at that corner. You're not going to see me going there, but I'm be strategic in how you find me there. What strategies are out against your life and you haven't been able to have ammunition against them because of having been distracted? The next question that Jesus, the next question that Jesus asked here is, if you can, because... The father says, if you can, please cast it out. Charles Spurgeon says that help my unbelief is something a man can only say by faith. He says, I believe, but help my unbelief. While men have no faith, they are unconscious of their unbelief. But as soon as they get a little faith, then they begin to be conscious of the greatness of their unbelief. Help my unbelief says that I can see because of the gift of faith you've given me, I can see how much unbelief is still there in my heart. And the last question is not from Jesus, but it's from the disciples. And we mentioned it a little bit earlier. Why couldn't we drive it out? God is calling us to a life of the fruit of the spirit. Our power is meant to flow from our relationship with the Holy Spirit, not a performative action where it's staged for that moment to give a particular impression jesus response is that some come out by prayer and fasting they are an expression of our take or our total dependence on god when you fast you're saying i'm weak fasting is an acceptance of our weakness saying that in my weakness i want to lean on who god is we live the kind of life sometimes that can progress without much faith until that faith is needed. And then it's exposed how much faith we actually don't have. I don't believe that this scripture was saying that they should have left the boy there 
go on and pray and fast it, and then come back. But the scripture is talking about how when you have a lifestyle of prayer and fasting, there are certain bondages you can break. There's a certain level of dependence in God that allows you to act as if it was Jesus acting through you. Are we so distracted from the mission that we think this is all that there is? There's a guy by the name of Wiersbe. He says that the authority that Jesus had given them was effective only if it was exercised by faith. But faith must be cultivated through spiritual discipline and devotion. As we close, I want to pray for three categories of people. The disciples, the father, and the boy. The scribes, God will handle them. <laughs> I believe God... God's word to the disciples tonight is start again. Leave those conversations that are pulling you away from the main thing. Keep the main thing, the main thing, and start again. I believe what God is saying to the Father. And the Father is that person, if you are here, if you've logged in tonight, and you have someone close to you that you feel like has been failed and hurt repeatedly, Jesus is saying to you tonight that he hears and he responds the last category is the boy. And I believe that if you feel like you fall in that category, God longs to deliver you. It says in verse 26 that the spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. And it says that the boy looks so much like a corpse that many said that he's dead. Sometimes we find our lives and ourselves feeling like we look like a corpse and many say that we are dead. Because the, the enemy, the demons there were trying to give the boy their final punch. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. Tonight, God's word is longing to pull us up by the hand, lift us up to our feet that we may be able to stand up. I'm going to pray Psalm 121 over us tonight. It says, I will lift up my eyes to the hills from where my help comes from. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. And later on it says that the sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. May we lift our eyes and keep them fixed on you, Lord God, and not be distracted, Lord Jesus. In your name I pray, Lord God. Amen. Amen. Amen.